Yes, Jesus, we're so thankful. Lord, our words will never suffice how thankful we are for you, Jesus. That you never leave us, you never forsake us. That when we were that one, that you didn't leave us behind, God. Thank you, Jesus, for your love, for your grace, for your goodness, God. Lord, we never grow tired of singing of you. We're so thankful that you met us here this morning, God. Lord, would you continue to speak through Shelton, through your word. Lord, again, our hearts are open to whatever you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. In an incredibly small and cool world, uh, Maley and Preston are worship leaders at a church where Amy attended when we were in college, and on staff with them leading worship is a student that I had when I was youth pastoring in like 2002 at a complete different church, so which is really, really kind of cool. Thank you for being here. Loved having you lead us. Love it. Love that. Love that. Um, one of our core things that we are focusing on is building up leaders. So I love seeing a student that grew up in our group uh, leading another church. Just just very, very neat. Hey, also, before I jump into sermon stuff, I also want to brag on you uh, that earlier Carlo made, made mention of it, but I think generosity is worth bragging about and celebrating, at least here in-house to, uh, uh, with us, um, that you guys, uh, without any pre-warning. Uh, you had me drop in your laps last week and need to, to give to. Uh, we originally set the goal at $1,000 last week to give to the Feaster Project. We blew well past that in the first service. So I set the goal for $2,400 uh, total for second service so that we can give all 20% of the homeless uh, children at Feaster a backpack. You guys blew well past that. So let me say thank you to you. That is awesome. And right now, if you, uh, if you would rather watch this instead of hearing me preach, uh, you could go up and observe our kids packing all 240 of those backpacks this morning with supplies. And we have uh, enough left over that there's uh, a family in our church that has a dear family whose who's, who's dad suddenly passed away. They have three kids that are a different school, but it has just, it just happened this past week. And so we have enough funds left over to make sure that those kids all have backpacks and supplies and made sure of. So thank you, church, for being the church. Very, very, very cool. Uh, praying about God's continual usage of us to, to minister and serve our city. I love it. I love it. All right. So uh, we are taking a, a major pause in our Acts series, uh, participants. We'll pick that back up in September, starting in Acts chapter 5. Uh, but from now to September, we have a couple other things that, that we'll hit on. We'll start a new little series next week uh, called Spend Yourself that goes hand in hand with this generosity as a study in Isaiah 58. So that is coming. This week, I wanted to use as a way to launch into our third round of what we call the Paseo Pathway. So if you're, you're new around here. Paseo Pathway is, is what we are using for discipleship. And I'm, I'll kind of give you some background on how we, how we got here. And we use it within gro our growth groups and, and all different ages from children all the way up through uh, senior adults. And so if you don't have uh, a growth group, you, you can easily this morning, they're getting ready to start this week, you can still have plenty of time to join one. And so after service, as Carlo gave mention, Cheryl uh, will have some volunteers out uh, in the hub and you, 
you can swing by and we'll get you plugged into one. You don't have to be a member of our church to be in a growth group. Uh, you, can, you can jump in at any time. You don't necessarily have to be a part of a growth group to do the pathway either. You can swing by the hub and you can pick up one of these packets that we'll walk through. Uh, and this morning I'll, I'll be preaching on the content of, of, of this packet. But let's, let's give some, some background uh, to, this, to why we're doing what we're doing. So earlier last year, I was, uh, I was sitting with one of our elders at a burger joint in San Diego, and we were talking discipleship. And if, you've, uh, if you're new to church and you don't know that word, it's a very biblical Bible language word to, to, to just is a word that Jesus told us to go make disciples of all nations. That's what we call the Great Commission. And it is the marching order for every church. It's why we exist, what we do, why we do what we do, is to go make disciples. And, and so a disciple is just this, this fancy word for somebody that has given their life to Christ, that they have accepted him as Lord and Savior, and that then they have given their life to him to follow him, to become more like him. And it's the deep assertion of Christianity that it's in becoming more like Jesus that we experience the, the joy and life of love that Jesus had, had saved us to in this world. And so there's more than just getting us to the place of, of belief in him. It's so much more than that. It's the process of becoming like him. And that process is a word we call discipleship. And for, for the bulk of my ministry, it's a word that I've been trying to hunt down and figure out. I, I grew up in a church that, that its discipleship efforts were through Sunday school and, uh, and, and through other routes. But we we never used the word discipleship, and I was never really trained on how I was supposed to go make disciples. And so I found myself early on uh, in ministry, and I have all these kids that, that I'm in charge of, and I'm going, I've never been trained on how to make disciples out of them. But my call is to do even more than that. My call is to make them into disciple makers as well, which is even harder. And so I began this journey that has been kind of the thrust of my focus in ministry. It's, it's culminated in, in the last several years before coming here. I was the discipleship pastor of a, of a much larger church and, and trying to come up with a, the discipleship plan for, for the, the folks in that church of how they can disciple other people. And it has just been the focus. So when, when I got hired here, there was, there was so much, uh, hey, talk about, hey, we, we're going to develop a discipleship program. We're like this. So I'm sitting down with this elder and we're discussing this. I'm excited about him and I'm just trying to drop some knowledge on him about how you do discipleship because I got this thing figured out. And, and he says something so profoundly simple that just stops me in my track. Like, I just, just shut me up. And I had never thought about it, and I felt guilty the moment he said it. See, I, I, part of my speech that I'm giving to him over hamburgers is, if you want to be a good disciple maker, you have to have a way of measuring whether you are actually helping this person grow. You have to have some kind of metrics of discipleship, right? So what skills are you like? So I pulled out for him what I had written at my previous church that they're all using. And here's, here's how we're measuring discipleship in my previous church. It was cute. They all rhymed. It was like five things, and because that's the way Bible rolls. Uh, no, uh, but, but, you know, uh, <laughs> that's the way I had it. So I had all these little, and, I, we gotta, and he just stopped me and he goes, how did Jesus measure discipleship? And I felt stupid because I had never asked that question. <laughs> you would think somewhere along the way, I would stop and go, how did Jesus measure discipleship? I had never asked it. And the, the great answer to that is the Bible is very clear about the most important thing there is to measure to determine whether somebody is actually growing as a disciple or not. It's, Jesus says, hey, all of the Bible hangs on this deal. Like, this is it. So you got to figure it. So jump with me to Mark chapter 12. And this will become very familiar to you if you've been around church. If not, 
you can sum up the entire Bible's focus and goal into this little section called the Great Commandment. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. There are Bibles in the chair in front of you. You're more welcome to grab one of those. If you're new to church and you don't have a Bible, take that one home. We'd love for you to have it. Mark chapter 12. It'll also be up on the screens. Uh, We can follow along here. Starting in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. And noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus answering says, this is the most important one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself And there is no commandment greater than these. I like Matthew's little, he had captures Jesus saying another little sentence there. Matthew, Jesus says, and all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. And otherwise, it is the foundation of all of God's activity. The entire Old Testament, everything he's been pushing forward is built off of these two commandments. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can summarize the entire thrust of the purpose of scripture in those two sentences. That's powerful. Therefore, if you're going to be growing as a disciple, the determining factor of whether you are growing is are you growing in your love for God and love for other people? That's what we measure. And that lines up directly with what scripture says. Paul in in 1 Corinthians 13 says, you could do amazing things. You could be performing miracles. You could be preaching amazing sermons. You could speak in tongues of angels. But if you don't have love, you've done nothing. So performance and all the other metrics is we could come up with to decide, is this person growing as a student? It doesn't matter. Are they growing in love for God? And are they growing in love for each other? That's our measurement, which makes sense. 1 John 4 tells us that God's very essence is love. It's who he is. The whole reason he sent Jesus into this world to do what Jesus did was was love. And so if you're going to be growing in likeness of Jesus, guess, guess what is the determining factor? Are you growing in love? Jesus says, people, will you know you are my disciples by the way you... Are you catching on? I didn't until he said that. And I was like, oh, exactly right. One of my favorite scenes in any Disney movie, and forgive me, I've got little kids. I'm in the Disney movie groove right now. Uh, but but I, love, I love in Little Mermaid when Ariel finds a fork. You remember this scene? And she takes it up to the idiot seagull, Scully, and she asks Scully, he's supposed to be the expert on all things human, what is this thing? And he tells her it's a dinglehopper. And then explains to her that humans use dinglehoppers to comb their hair. So Ariel taking his stupid definition for a fork because he has no clue what it's designed for and what its purpose is, goes home back under the ocean and she starts combing her hair with a dinglehopper every day. Until finally, towards the end of the movie, she's sitting with her Prince Charming at his family's house and they're having a big dinner. And lo and behold, next to her dinner plate is a dinglehopper. And so she grabs the dinglehopper and in front of his entire family and her Prince Charming, she starts combing her hair much to their, their dismay. And they teach her that it's really a fork and what it's really used for. And something deep inside of me has always connected with that. Go with me on this. <laughs> I'm serious. I've always... Because that's a a statement on when you don't know what something is designed for, you use it for all the stupid reasons you could come up with. 
And the great assertion of Scripture is that we are not here by happen chance. That we have a creator. We were designed with the purpose and intent in mind and mankind from the beginning. The entire Bible is built off the story of creation. That we were built with a purpose. And it's in only in satisfying that purpose that we experience satisfaction in life. We were made for something. And the whole story of the Bible is that mankind traded in God's purposes for his own purposes, and that's when sin began, and all of the hurt and all of the brokenness that we see is a direct symptom from the misunderstanding and operating on stupid definitions of what humanity exists for in the first place. So why, why were we created? What's the purpose? Well, the Bible's great assertion is that God made us out of love for love. That that was God's purpose. That, that his whole reason for making us, that he existed in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that he could share that love. And love is meant to be shared so he could continue to expand creation so that he could share that love and they can find their life within his love and, and, receive, and return it back to him. And it is out of that love that he created us. So when Adam and Eve and mankind turned its back on God, they turned its back on God's love being the satisfying thing, and they began running after, running after anything else that would satisfy. In, in Isaiah, you see the prophet saying, why do you run after broken cisterns that, that don't hold water? Later, Jeremiah will say, why, why do you run after bread and wine that doesn't satisfy when I'm offering an endless feast? The cry of heaven has long been, you are looking for satisfaction in places where it cannot be because you were created. You're operating as dingle hoppers when you should be a fork, right? That's Shelton theology for you. Dumb it down to my level. There you go. But we were created for love, for a love relationship with God. And the whole reason Jesus came was to restore this love relationship with God, to restore what was lost. So when he dies on the cross, he, he gets rid of all of our guilt. When he raises from the dead, he, he raises with this connection to God in hand. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And whoever is sitting in this room has the door swung wide open that God is no longer the God out there, but he becomes the loving God right here with me today that I get to have a relationship with. We were made for love. And it's the assertion of Scripture is that when love becomes the reason, when love becomes our, thri our thriving force, then we thrive as, as people. It's, it's what we were created for. Now hear me, that's different than belief. I'm assuming that in order to love God, you already believe in Him, right? But you can stop at belief and never get to love. James says even the demons believe. The issue is they don't love. So we don't have a low bar of belief. Hey, I hope you believe in God. Yeah, but I hope that belief turns to you seeing Jesus and his beautiful face and his love for you, and it begins to result in love back for him. And it's loving him that makes us a disciple. It's loving him. So this morning we are asking the question, in light of all of this and in measuring love, how do we love him with our mind? Earlier in this year, we've walked through uh, in the Paseo Pathway, and you're, if you're interested in getting our old studies, you're more than welcome to have them. We can provide them for you. But we've already studied how to love God with your heart. We've already studied how to love God with your soul. We did that our last uh, growth group run as we, we studied the book of Psalms together. And this, this run, we're, we're for eight weeks, we're focusing on loving God with our mind. And so we have a driving question this morning 
morning of how do we love God with our mind? Because let's face it, if we ask people to define love for us, you're going to get all sorts of answers about emotions and, and being kind to somebody and, and the way you feel about somebody and the way you serve somebody. Rarely will you get any definition that has anything to do with intellect, right? And yet God says, love me with all of your mind. So we have a question this morning. How do we, how do, we do that? How do we do that? Well, before I get into what we're going to focus on, we just need to start with love for God always, always starts with his love for us. Anything we muster up is always a reflection of what he's already spoken over us with love. And this, which means this, anything you say to God will always be an I love you too, because he has always eternally spoken I love you through Jesus Christ. And there's no caveat to that. Look at what 1 John says, 1 John 3.10. I actually think this might be 410. I might have messed that up. But this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And now, hear this. This is love. Not that, not that we wake up in the morning going, I'm going to try really hard to love God today. No, no, no. That's not love. This is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for sins. Now, do you see any caveats on that? Do you see it saying, hey, God loves you if you, if you got all your stuff together and you're not that bad of a person and you don't have any addictions and if you have the right education level, if you have the right bank account, if you speak the right language, if you look the right way, God loves you then. There's no caveat on that. God loves all of us. And he sent his son as the way to prove that, to start it, so you understand that God adores you. And not just a little bit. I'm talking about a reckless love that sent his only son to die on a cross amount of love. And he loves you and all of us as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's his adoration for you and I. So any part that we talk about our love for God always starts there, that I love God because he first loves me. And every morning I wake up, I don't start with my efforts to love God. I start with focusing on, setting my mind on, my heart on, my full being on the reality that God desperately loves me. And that's my reality for that day. And nothing I do that day will change the fact that God desperately loves me. Right? So we set our mind on that second thing that I would do every morning is to understand his loving presence. Romans 5.5 5 says he has, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's like God said, let me get my love in this picture right here and I'm going to pour it out into your heart through the Holy Spirit. So hear what this is saying. That God's love is not this faraway thing out there, that some abstract thing that you got to think out, and there's some God way far out there that loves me, and he's for me. Okay, great. No, no, no. God's love is right here. And what this is saying is that God's love can become an experience for you every day. First service, we had a young man that's never been in church. He was sitting in the back row. And he came up afterwards and says, I've, I've never felt until today, I've never felt that God loved me. And he looked around, and his arms were up in the air, and he didn't know why. He had a deep emotional experience because God was pouring his love out, and he was physically, emotionally, mentally experiencing the love of God through the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? That God's love is a reality that we get to live out of on a regular basis. This isn't some abstract puzzle in the sky I got to put together. I know that God's love, God loves me because he, he sent his son, and I can experience that love because he's given me his Holy Spirit, and every day I live out of the reality of that. Does that make sense? 
And so out of the truth of that, then he has growing disciple because he loves me and has redeemed me, and I want to love him in return, I can then begin to love God with my mind. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I'll give you three things that we're going to focus on in this pathway. Number one, we can engage our faith with our mind. We can engage our faith with our mind. I don't know when this began happening. I, I think in, you can see traces of it throughout history, but it has gotten very, very popular in the last hundred years. That There's this line of thought in our culture, in our society, and not just ours, and in, in, in around the world in many places, that in order to be Christian, you've got to be stupid. That's, that somehow in Christianity, we just check our minds at the door and, and we're fools. That why else would we believe in this God and his son supposedly 2,000 years ago coming to die on the cross? Why in the world would we, and that he raised from the dead and we have zero physical proof of that supposedly. And, and so why in the world would we believe in all this and base our life on this? And there are countless forums online. Just go on Reddit, type, type in atheism, have fun with that. Um, where this train of thought is, is resonating. Younger people in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. In younger generations, it is a common conversation that we must be checking. Our, somehow faith is me checking my brain at the door, and then I turn off my brain, and I just be, focus on loving Jesus. My, if you think that's what, what, what childlike faith is, you've completely misunderstood. Because God not only says, hey, use your mind. He commands us to love him with our mind. Faith is not a mindless thing. It is the 100% using of our mind. The issue is, and I think we are to blame for perpetuating this, this, this view of us as Christians. Because I think uh, maybe out of laziness or lack of understanding of where to, where to go, we, we get asked hard questions. How, how do you know the Bible is real? That's a bunch of words on a page written thousands of years ago, and you're basing your entire life on this, this book? How do you know that's even real? How do you know that wasn't made up? How, how do you know Jesus and his disciples in the aftermath just didn't make up the whole story about the resurrection? How do you, how do you, and hard questions get asked. And because we are ill-prepared to answer those questions, because we've never sought out and engaged our mind in our faith, what happens when people ask those hard questions is we often respond out of fear, and we respond in, in hurtful ways. And it only perpetuates the misconception that people already come in with about Christians. Oh, you are an idiot, because <laughs> you can't engage in this conversation. So a huge part of loving God with their mind is saying, you know what, I'm going to engage faith with my mind. Can I tell you something? Jesus is not up in heaven going, oh, I don't know the answer to that question. You got me stopped. In fact, Jesus says, ask questions. Ask, seek, knock, he says. If Jesus is truth, then any examination that is heartfelt and real, running after, after asking hard questions, when they get to the ending point, guess who they're going to find on the other side? Jesus. I love C.S. Lewis says, I finally gave in and admitted God was God. Do this heartfelt run after. And so in a way to help us and equip us to engage our minds, our, our faith with our minds, uh, we're going to study a book together. 
There are a lot of books that we could study together, but I want to invite you in on this. This is a book written by a pastor named Mark Clark. Our men's group has already studied this. We're going to open it up to the entire church. It's called The Problem of God, Answering a Skeptic's Challenges to Christianity. He's a, a pastor up in the Vancouver area. It asks very, 10 very hard questions. I like it because it's kind of written in everyday language, and, and you, can, you can wade into this. Um, it's, it's very good. We're going to have two group discussions on this book as a church on a Sundays, um, on a Sunday evening from 4 to 6. We'll do one on August 18th, and we'll do another one on September uh, 8th. Uh, and we'll have a big group discussion. We'll go chapters one through five on that first one, chapter six through 10. He asks very hard, hard questions. Now, if you're sitting there going, I'm not a reader, that's for me. Let me quickly just poo-poo on your parade, okay? <laughs> um, there's audio books on this. So even if you're not a reader, you can do that. And even if you don't want to spend the money on an audio book or the physical book, there's free sermons he preaches on every chapter that you can go to YouTube or his website, not spend any money, and still get every chapter right there, right? So we following? So, so the accessibility to this is only a matter of choice, not of ability, right? So wait in. Engage your faith. We're going to ask tough questions about the Bible, about God's existence, about how we know Jesus can be true. What is out there that we have the reason to help us to engage in hard conversations about Jesus? Make sense? All right. You're invited to that. Join me in that. We'll send out some reminders on that as that comes, comes your way. Not only do we engage our faith with our mind, but we have to learn to apply our mind towards God. Apply our mind. When Amy and I first started dating, um, we do what everybody does when they first start. You ask questions of each other, right? And so I didn't know this girl from California. And so um, I actually thought she was Hispanic when I asked her out because she worked at a tanning salon and was super dark with black hair. And <laughs> so when she told me her last name was Hennahan, I'm going, mark that down. I <laughs> had that wrong, right? So I'm learning about her and she's learning, she's learning I'm a country idiot. And so we're, we're getting to know one another. And, and that's what couples do. When you, and so the longer we were dating, the more we realized they were starting to, to really love each other, the more we wanted to know. Right? That's what you do with somebody you love. You want to know them. I want to know all about you. I want to know your family. I want to know your history. I want to know who you are. Newsflash, if you don't care to know about the person you love, you don't really love them. You might love what they provide for you. You might love the feelings you have when you're around them, but you don't love them. Because to love somebody requires knowing that person. Side story on this real quick. So, one of the first questions, we're going through family. You already know where this is going, don't you? So one of the first questions, uh, she, we're going through family, and she tells me she has an uncle, Jorge, from Peru, which she does, uh, who married into the family, married her aunt, Christine. And, and so she's doing that. And I have this voice that I get in. You're probably catching it on when I'm being sarcastic and stupid that I thought maybe she would catch on that that's what I was being. She did not. And I said, oh, hey, I have an uncle, Jorge, too. And she says, you do? And I said, yeah, he plays trumpet in a mariachi band in San Antonio on the Riverwalk. She's like, okay, and files that away. Okay, fast forward two years later. We are in San Antonio, and I'm introducing my girlfriend over the past two years to my grandma Jeannie. And she says, my grandma says, you see where this is going, let's go get Mexican food on the Riverwalk. To which Amy responds, oh, do we get to hear your son Jorge play? And my grandma goes, what? And I'm in the back of the room like, bail out, bail out. <laughs> she has three daughters. I was lying. That was, uh, you were supposed to catch on. She didn't talk to me for like two days after, after that, <laughs> trying to recover off, off all of that. But I thought even in that moment, going, how cute. I made that joke two years ago, and she remembered it. 
Because when you love somebody, you want to know somebody. She learned something valuable about me that day, right? Like, I'm an idiot. Don't believe me. I came across a quote recently that has just rocked me to my core. Jonathan Edwards says, seeking God is the chief business of the Christian. I love that. God says, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart, Jeremiah 29, 13. That, that he is really bad at hide and go seek. <laughs> he wants to be found. And seeking him is the chief business. And there's nothing passive about seeking God. You don't accidentally seek somebody. We live in a world where we use passive language about love, like supposedly you fall in love. Can we just blow that up real quick? You don't fall in love. You fall into attraction. You fall into infatuation. You don't fall into love. Every couple in here that has been married, any, listen to me, love takes work. I think they've probably taught you that by now, newly, right? It takes, amen, right there. It takes effort. It's worth it. But Jesus didn't passively just happen to come down into this world to die on the cross. There was nothing passive about God expressing his love for us. He actively said, I adore you. I will do this step. I will seek you out by sacrificing for you. And that's our understanding of what love is. There's nothing passive. We don't fall into love. You work love. You effort love because it's a choice in your soul that you say, I love you and I'm running after you. Therefore, if you love God, if he is your your place of love and you're going to respond to his love, there's a running after an effort that's required. You want to know him. You seek to know Jesus. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, God, and the one true son whom you have sent. This is what it's all about, knowing God, which takes effort. That's exactly right. You pursue it. So so we're just going to hit pause and, and ask the question, how is your pursuit of God? Maybe this is the area of growth for you. And you don't have a place where you're, you're seeking to, to, to learn scripture more and you, you haven't really built in the discipline to, to be listening to podcasts or sermons or digging into books or what, whatever, where you're going, I want to know more. I want to know God more. Maybe this is the area. And this is the part of discipleship for you, applying your mind, trying in your relationship with God. And finally, number three, using your mind in life. The greatest classroom to determine whether you love God with your mind is not any classroom we come up here with at the church. It's your life. The greatest determinant and measuring factor of whether you have mindful love of God are the choices that you and I make. Are they wise choices? Have we learned who God is and out of response to that made our choices in light of who God is? Are we using our mind in the life that we are living Are we disassociating our faith from the choices that we make? Does that make sense? Mindful love of God, an everyday choice. I will tell you that um, probably one of the most profound faiths that Amy and I have ever experienced in in a dear disciple of Christ came from a couple in Waco. He was an auto mechanic, was in the army, um, and she was a secretary at a, at a place. They hadn't, neither one of them had a college degree. Uh, he would pray often uh, at church, and he'd get the word prostrate and prostate mixed up all the time. <laughs> Which is funny. You can, if you don't know what a prostate is, you can ask that later on. 
that guy had the deepest love for God that we have ever experienced, and his wife did as well. And one of the biggest ways, they, did, they, they knew the Bible, they tried, he would read books, and he would have trouble at times understanding that, but you know where we saw the proof of his love for God and a mindful love for God? They were so wise in the choices they made in life. They applied what they did know to the life they had out of fear and love of God. It was a measuring factor. So, so for us, and how we're going to study this as a church in order to use our minds, we're going to study the book of Proverbs together. And so uh, Amy actually taught me a method of studying Proverbs when we were in college. There are 31 days in the calendar, and there are 31 chapters to the book of, of Proverbs. So whatever day of the, of the week it is or day of the month it is, that's the chapter you read. And you study it together as a family. You read it together. You look in Proverbs, or you could pick it up at chapter 16 or chapter 1. It doesn't matter. It's not a storyline. It's just little wisdom nuggets that you study. And this is where I'd encourage you to find a growth group. Uh, Proverbs 27, 17 says this. It says, as, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Hear the wisdom of God right off the bat. That you need other people in your life to help shape who you are, to mold who you are. Right? And so you find a growth group. We can help you find a growth group. If you have a group of friends outside of here and you want to study Proverbs together, do that. I think Scripture is best read in a group because you get to hear the perspective that they have and what the Holy Spirit is revealing to them as they're studying it, their life experiences, and, and all of that begins happening. You don't have to be a member here to be in a growth group. We can get you plugged in. We have one in, in every day of the week that you can jump into. While we have some that are a little bit age-specific, my favorite ones are the ones that are not age-specific because you can jump in. And even if you're like a young one a person and there's an old, older group that meets on Tuesdays, I'd tell you, jump in that. It's one of the most life-forming things you would have, and especially in a place talking about wisdom. We can get you plugged into a group, find a group, study Proverbs, and let's grow together. I'm excited about where we're going with this. I'm going to close uh, quickly with, with where I began. A man walked up to Jesus, and he honestly was probably trying to trick Jesus, which is just really funny in its own place, right? Like God, Jesus created him, and yet this guy's going, hey, I got a tough question for you. What's the most important commandment in all? And Jesus lovingly looks back at him and says, hey, the Lord our God is one. Love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And go love your neighbor as yourself. And on that, all of Scripture hangs. But here's what I find amazing. That as Jesus was speaking those words to him about what he should do, Jesus was looking at him through the eyes and understanding of what he was already about to do for that man. And he says, I adore you. And I love you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my mind, and with all my strength. And I'm going to love you like I love myself. Just watch. And a few months from that point, they were nailing him to a cross. And that was him saying, do you see? Do you see how much I love you? May you have it to your core. And may you feel the love of God. He adores you. Now let's love him in response. Heavenly Father, as we close this morning, we just do it to tell you thank you. You are a loving, kind God. That you move and you stir and you call us to yourself out of deep love for us. That you cover up our failures, you cover up our mistakes, you, 
You, you don't hold our past against us, God. You, you just say, come to you, and in you we find life, we find love, we find new beginnings, we find new family, we find new ways of, of making decisions, God. We come alive in your love. And we hear you, God, that, that, that it is your love that created us, it was your love that redeemed us, and it's what your love will, will be, be our eternity. And so we start with eternity's business right here, God, by loving you in response. God, for, for the person in this room that is struggling to have love for you, if they're, they're looking, there, I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you stir that they begin to feel you pour out your love for them in their hearts through the Holy Spirit. God, we give ourselves to you and worship in that adoration. Do a work in us to adore you mightily in this world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.